Hello, it's Toby here. As a prelude to the conversation you're about to hear, I have to say, I think it was genuinely one of the most important topics I've ever discussed on this podcast. Um, but there was a technical issue with the sound of one of our guests. Actually, it was a pretty severe problem that meant that both the recording and the backup recording were irretrievably muffled and distorted. Uh, or at least it would have been irretrievable for yours truly with my very third-rate audio editing skills. But this was then the perfect opportunity to try out an AI audio processing tool, which I saw a while ago but have not yet had cause to use. And I have to say, I'm very impressed. I mean, you could be the judge, but the result is so good, actually, that with the exception of the occasional moment, which you might not even notice, the recording is now completely comprehensible. It's not quite sharp studio quality, and you can hear that, but believe me, if it wasn't for the AI, you would not even be able to listen to this episode at all. And that would be a real shame since, as I said, I think it might be the most important topic we've ever covered. So I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords, and you should too, at least for the next hour or so. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Øystein Janssen and Ulla Øvredweit. Professor Janssen is based at the University of Bergen where he is a leading researcher on ocean sciences and climate change, especially as regards the Arctic and the subarctic. He founded the Bjerknes Centre for Climate Research and he's a vice president of the European Research Council. And Ulla Övretveit is a former director of Arctic Frontiers, an organisation which, among other things, hosts an annual conference for scientists, policymakers and others to discuss issues related to the future of the Arctic region. He's also led a regional think tank for Western Norway and was the director of science to policy for SDGs at the University of Bergen. He's now the manager of the pilot project Coastal Development Centre in Kirkenes. And finally, he was one of the co-editors of the book Building Common Interest in the Arctic Ocean with Global Inclusion. So, Oystein and Ulla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So we're going to talk about science and policy in the Arctic. Uh, and as a way into that, for me at least, I remember a long time ago on this podcast, we did have an episode about the Antarctic, and that was with Natasha Gardner. So it's, it's in a way satisfying to top and tail, as it were, and talk now about the Arctic too. But the first question that springs to my mind, in my relative ignorance about the whole thing, is whether there are commonalities between the two. If you're an expert on Arctic science, as indeed the two of you are, does that mean you also know a bit about Antarctica, or are they just completely different animals? Oh, they, they are similar in the sense that they are both polar regions, but they are very different. Antarctica is, is land and ice. The Arctic Ocean is uh, the ice is floating. And of course, Antarctica is almost uninhabited. But uh, around the Arctic, there are, are peoples, countries, uh, geopolitical interests. So the, it's much more complex in the Arctic in that sense. I would like to add to that that it's also uh, the Antarctic is governed by a treaty. The Arctic is governed by the eight nations and the law of the sea. Okay, so there's no special agreement about the Arctic. It's just managed by the regular law of the countries who happen to own it. And as you say, law of the sea. Yeah, the, the Arctic is like most other places of the world. It's governed by uh, national jurisdictions and, and the interest of the states that has uh, the ownership to these uh, areas. Mm, okay, but it is more than just an ocean. I mean, not only has it got ice on it, as you say, but it has quite a few other special features that make it much more interesting. I guess it's a bit more complicated to govern an area like that than somewhere relatively more boring, like, I don't know, the Atlantic Ocean. Sorry to Atlantic Ocean scholars, no doubt that's very interesting too, but I mean, not interesting in a geopolitical sense like the Arctic is. I mean, definitely, because the, the Arctic is a place where eight nations also meet. It's a scarcely populated uh, area um, with resources and with a lot of information that is important for the whole uh, development of the whole planet. 
So it's obviously a more complicated area than an empty part of the world, but it's uh, still not uh, an area that has been a lot of conflict uh, happening, uh, as opposed to some of the discourse that has been going on about the, you know, the, the race to the Arctic, the fight of Arctic resources. Conflicts are being solved to a very large degree, you know, in, in through diplomatic channels and uh, in just regular discussions in the UN, uh, in in the uh, law of the sea uh, bodies. Yeah, the, the Arctic is is of course an ocean, so parts of the Arctic is an ocean, but there are also land areas that are governed by the uh, national states that border the Arctic. But but it's true as as Ulla says that uh, normally things have been working okay diplomatically in the Arctic. It's been an area of scientific interest, so that the, the scientific exploration of, of, of the Arctic has led to lots of contacts between uh, the different countries, even during the Cold War. The big military superpowers have lots of, of uh, interest in the Arctic, uh, so, so, so it's not without uh, military interest or geopolitical interest which uh, so far has been handled quite nicely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a greater challenge that the, the, the war further south will spill into the Arctic than countries will make a war over Arctic issues, if that makes sense. Hmm. Well, given that we're having this conversation in, in summer 2023, there are some elephants in the room there, which I can already sense we're working our way towards. Um, but I would just like to make sure I've got my head around the status quo before we talk about any elephants. So we have here a complicated and important area of the world, which is shared by eight countries and has no particular special rules governing it, which in the case of Antarctica, I recall being told it was invaluable to making the whole thing run smoothly. So how have we got away with this so far in the Arctic? I mean, if you think about other areas of the world where there are these multiple dimensions of geopolitical interest and clashing territorial claims and so on. History has no shortage of wars, frankly, over those kinds of areas. Why has the Arctic been a relatively peaceful issue? Is it just that it's too cold and annoying for anyone to really care about? Like there's nothing to fight over? Well, I, I think uh, it hasn't been high uh, on the radar of geopolitics in some sense. But of course, the Russians have their big uh, uh, fleet base in the Arctic. They need to go through Arctic waters to get out into the other waters from those bases. The Americans have lots of interest militarily, but that has, hasn't been leading to conflicts. Uh, and I think one reason is that there has been uh, some understanding and some contact between the, the Arctic nations that has toned down the potential tensions. The Arctic Council is, is one body that has been very important in, in achieving that. Yeah, I, I think that the operating in the Arctic is very, very complicated, be that if you have scientific operations or industrial operations. There has been talk about um, oil exploration the last couple of decades in the Arctic. It's enormously complicated once you get you know, deep into the Arctic, because you're so, so far from, from everything. So to do that, the, the actors need to collaborate across borders to make that happen. And the same is the, the, the issue uh, on major scientific uh, operations. You know, it's just rational to work together to, to do things. And, and that is also, the even though there are resources there, they are not as uh, vital for either of the eight Arctic states. I would presume that they would, you know, go to any military conflict over them. But as Iceland says, it's a very a strategic, geostrategic, military strategic hotspot because of the short distance between the continents and uh, both the Russian Northern Fleet and uh, um, the NATO, um, you know, being more present in the North Atlantic and into Arctic areas, perhaps these days, that's, that's obvious. If you look at the map in a, in a polar projection, there's not such a large distance between U.S. territory and, and Russian territory. Huh. Yeah, of course, you realize how close things are together when you look from the top down. I, I, I just one last point here. This uh, science, diplomatic, and people-to-people -people architecture uh, or system 
that was initiated at the Cold War, where scientists and, and different actors also uh, had started working together on pressing issues that moved across borders, especially in, in both air and ocean in the Arctic, became visible. And it created an opportunity to build collaboration systems and uh, or institutions for cross-border collaborations. And it sort of it grew very fast from the end of the Cold War and, and until, well, at least until 2014. Uh, but uh, we have also seen new initiatives and big projects going on after that. So it's this structure has sort of made a platform or a, an arena to solve issues and to keep sort of amalgaming the different interests. Okay. Well, if it's not too late in our conversation, perhaps you could sketch out what those institutions look like, what, what kind of things have built up over the years to manage collaborations in the Arctic. Yeah, the Arctic Council and uh, the International Arctic Research Commission um, the, the International Barnes uh, Secretariat, um, also the Arctic uh, Sign Ministerial, and you have the Arctic uh, Science Agreement. So there's a, a big uh, nexus of uh, agreements and organizations and institutions. But of course, the most important, the sort of the, the central institution would be the Arctic Council with its working groups and uh, I think it also should be mentioned when we talk about the Arctic Council that there are eight Arctic nations who are the members, but there are numerous countries all over the world who are observers and to various extent take part in, in the groups and activities of the Arctic Council, including uh, China, Japan, Singapore, South Korea. Nations positioned on the equator are observers because they somehow feel that the Arctic is important uh, for various reasons. Uh, not least climatic research reasons, but only also for other strategic interests they may have. Yeah, good. I mean, so we're starting to get onto the topic of science for policy. And this is where I think what you just dropped in there is actually very interesting indeed, because, I mean, perhaps naively, I assume to start with that the reason it was important to study the Arctic was because the Arctic is interesting, you know, and the same reason that we study, I don't know, Mars, because Mars is interesting. And a secondary reason might be so that we understand how to manage and protect it, the Arctic, I mean, not Mars. But then what you said just points to another reason, which I've also read a bit about, which is that one major motivation for studying the Arctic is not to understand the Arctic in itself, but in fact, to help us understand other areas of science and tackle challenges in other parts of the world or indeed across the whole world, like climate change. Could you perhaps say a little bit more about that, the role of Arctic science in global science and policymaking? Yeah, it is, uh, from my perspective, being a climate researcher, the Arctic is very important. Some people say what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So, so it influences the, the global climate system on, on, a, on a much larger scale than the area itself. and. Uh, the Arctic is also where global warming is happening fastest. Uh, so, so it's some way a, a canary in, in a mine a type of, of situation where, where you can see almost year by year uh, the sea ice cover over the Arctic is diminishing and permafrost areas are, are melting and so forth. So it has a, a big impact on the global climate system. And of course it exchanges with the global climate system. So What's happening to the south of the Arctic makes a larger presence in the Arctic now than it used to be, so in terms of weather systems or ocean currents. So this makes it an important part of understanding, predicting and, and forecasting what will happen to the global climate, which of course should be of interest to any policymaker. Yeah, and, and also as far as um, how operations or, or knowledge from the Arctic has been influencing policy processes in other areas of the world. The work of the working groups under the Arctic Council, what they have been producing has also had an impact on various uh, processes. Yeah, I could mention the persistent organic pollutants uh, agreement uh, also has uh, been implemented like globally. 
Also, interesting to mention when we talk about we have like two poles, the north and the south, but we also start to talk about the third pole, which is the Himalaya region, uh, and the third pole initiative uh, are working to sort of understand and collaborate better because of the, the enormous importance of the Himalayan water as a water source for the, the countries surrounding it, there needs to be also be better collaboration. This initiative has also been very inspired by the work done in the Arctic, like the Arctic Council and so on. Okay, right. So the work done in the Arctic as a model for other parts of the world where you also have great scientific importance and, I guess, complicated geopolitics. Yeah. And, and I think we should also mention in the Arctic is uh, the second largest uh, ice mass in the world, the Greenland ice sheet which contains about seven meters of sea level. So changes there in terms of melting the ice sheet, which is happening today is the single most important factor in, in global sea level rise. Wait, so seven meters of global sea level? Yeah, if, if everything melts. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, so if you're in a coastal city with, with a relief of one meter, then you can imagine. So what's happening in the Arctic or with the Greenland ice sheet will have global repercussions uh, regardless of, of what we do and it or and it already has yikes so you're sketching a model of the interface between science and policy where it's touching as it were at both ends you've got the research being done which is very important for policymakers around the world so that they can deal with climate change but you've also got the other end of the process which is the very important role that policymakers play in making that research possible at all because of the special nature of the Arctic. It's not like you can just go out into a field behind your house and take measurements. You have to have policy there to enable the research to take place at all. I start to see why this place is so interesting to study. Yeah, it's it's also an area of immense beauty. So so if you, if you ever have the opportunity to go to the Arctic before it melts, uh, I, would, I would strongly advise. Well, from a man who lives on the west coast of Norway, which is undoubtedly the most beautiful place I've ever seen. That's quite a recommendation. <laughs> anyway, so I think we now understand why the scientific work that's done in the Arctic is so important, but you've already hinted quite strongly, and listeners will also have guessed, no doubt, that this is now under threat in a way that it hasn't been historically, even at times when the geopolitics and the kind of external policy-making environment has been very challenging. So broadly speaking, where do we stand right now? Broadly, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine made the Western governments and the EU act quite swiftly to stop all collaboration between Western and Russian science institutions. And also there was a pausing in the work of the, the Arctic Council and, and their working groups. Now that has uh, started to re-emerge as Norway has taken over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council, but without Russia. But but the there has been you know major research projects that overnight has been if not shut down then the the Russian partners had to be cut out data from Russian partners could not be used so this has been a I think for for many uh, many working on this uh, has has been a very troublesome time. Yeah, can I just ask, just like really practically, can you do this stuff without Russia? I mean, you say the work of the Arctic Council has resumed without Russia. Does that make any sense? It depends a bit on, on what kind of research it is. Some of the research is based on field measurements on Russian territories, and that cannot be done now by Western institutions. Well, and Russia is also a large part of the Arctic, so... So to get a holistic view of what's happening in the Arctic, you definitely would need uh, data from Russia. Some of it is coming still through the World Meteorological Organization, for instance, uh, which has a network of, of meteorological stations. The land surface temperature is still being recorded in a decent manner. That's organized by the, by the UN. But of course, work in territorial waters of, of Russia it's not happening, and that's a major part of, of the Arctic Ocean. The measurements of methane emissions from thawing permafrost, which is one of the big unknowns in, in climate research, cannot be done in a similar way 
they have to then rely on North American observations. But the biggest part of the permafrost areas are, are in Russia, in Siberia. So, so you can say partly one can continue. We can still observe uh, remotely from satellites, but in situ measurements or campaigns or experiments uh, that depends on on the, on the Russian territories cannot be done. And of course, uh, Russia has also provided uh, infrastructure for logistics to support Western-led expeditions, and that cannot be done either. Yeah, and as far as um, the strategies goes for for Western institutions, um, we see Norwegian uh, universities and others uh, looking to work closer with other Western partners. So whether previously has been looking eastward and now looking westward to, to Canada or to work on Greenland and also to work um, closer in a, in a Nordic uh, context. And then, so the war in Ukraine has been going on for well over a year now at the time of recording. What are the potential implications if this continues? Well, Russia is 45% of, of Arctic territory. So if it's if it's shut down or, or data don't uh, come out from Russia and knowledge don't come out from Russia, I think that uh, our understanding of our Arctic climate and Arctic ocean system, but also you know on a societal uh, level, which is social scientific data resilience and so on, which there has been a lot of good science collaboration done on. We will not have that understanding. And of course, that will make general knowledge about Arctic development much, much weaker. Um, Long-term consequence is that this whole Arctic science collaboration system that has been developed through decades and may have been developed out of uh, special circumstances, if it goes like five, ten years where we don't have any collaboration with with Russian partners, uh, the chances are great that it will collapse and it will be more difficult to restart it. That's that's also a big challenge for the understanding of the Arctic region and its consequences on the rest of the world for for decades. If if I may add here, the, there is one aspect which deals with the indigenous peoples. Uh, there are a number of indigenous peoples around the Arctic, also in Russia. And uh, the thawing of tensions after the Cold War and the, the emergence of this architecture of collaboration has helped a lot in terms of indigenous peoples meeting each other and, and having their voice heard. And now there is a, uh, it's very difficult to, to continue this in terms of collaboration with, with those indigenous peoples that live in, in, in Russian territories. It's not so many people, but it's, it's, it's an important aspect of this freezing of, of collaboration. Uh, I would also say that we would, uh, over some time, lose critical information on, on the state of the global climate system, which every nation should be interested in. Uh, and thinking of, particularly which I've mentioned earlier uh, in this conversation, the state of the permafrost, the emission of greenhouse gases from the permafrost, the reflectivity of the planet, the speed of changes, and also possible disruptions of, of the ocean circulation, which would depend on data coming in from, from Russia. So, so from a policymaker point of view, Losing these um, these data and this information, if it goes on for for some years, will be uh, very difficult. It's, it's you cannot interpolate the data. You just have a big hole in your database. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what do we do about this? And I mean, not just what's your view, but also is there any kind of a unified view within the scientific community? I think from the people I, I've spoken to, and my my impression is that everybody's have the deepest understanding that there needs to be strong reactions from the West towards the Russian aggression. And of course, Norway being in, and Ukraine is a neighboring country to Russia, 
uh, and Norway is too. There's there's no real fear of Russia invading Norway, but we have to make a very strong uh, stand on that this is not okay and uh, violating international law is not okay. But how yeah, it's said, I mean, although it's also in your favor that it's quite a long march from the Russian border to any well-populated parts of Norway, which is not true about Finland. Instantly. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's true. But I, I, and I, I, but I don't think that uh, it's not it's not on on the Russian agenda to look to invade Norway unless uh, there there will be a, like a, a full-scale war between Russia and NATO. No, agreed. But but it's still important to make a, a firm stand from the West. But I think th- this reaction, uh, shutting down um, science projects, science collaborations, is probably unprecedented. Uh, and using uh, science as uh, as a means to sort of send this type of signal is, of course, you know, controversial on a more systemic level and and it's it is a paradox that we are sending a signal to uh despotic uh, regime by reducing uh, freedom of speech and and freedom of information uh, flows but on, on a principal level this has been complicated for many uh, to sort of fully be on board on the way uh, these sanctions have been implemented and how they have been designed I also, my impression is that uh, from the scientific community, they wanted to be confronted or heard uh, from governments before this policy was uh, implemented. It, it went. It was a very, very fast reaction. Uh, the, there could be more consultations between the scientific community, between the scientific community and governments before it was implemented. Um, and of course, you know, there are really big frustrations on scientists who are working on projects that might have to be terminated because they have been relying heavily on Russian sources, on Russian data and Russian collaborators. That's that's also an, an, a clear issue here. And I agree co- completely with what we said about the, the need to react strongly. But if you look at it in a global perspective, there are other threats to the world, for instance, climate change. And, and so I would assume that governments would be somewhat interested in also not disrupting the flow of data that can help us understand, adapt to, and, and mitigate climate change, and, and then make some compromises. But it's very difficult to do that when there, there is a war ongoing. So at least one should start thinking about what would be the issues and how can we get back to some way of, of scientific collaboration uh, which, of course, is difficult with a government uh, in, in an authoritarian regime like, like Russia. But but in any case, get back to some sort of a scientific exchange and collaboration after the war hopefully ends in the future. Yeah, but I think even if, if the war should end tomorrow, there will be so much, uh, you know, cleaning up and, and, and so much mistrust being built between the West and Russia that it would take, I think, a long time before like we would be back to a, a level of collaboration and trust that we had before the war started. There is, There are signals. There, there's a great uh, uh, optimism attached to the Norway taking over the chairmanship of, uh, of the Arctic Council. And I'm not, just, I'm not saying this because I'm a Norwegian, but this is what I hear from other both Finnish and, and uh, American and other d- diplomats and s- scientists. And the foreign minister uh, expressed uh, at the speech in, in Tromsø that uh, they would see if there were any you know possibilities of finding ways to at least keep like a, some sort of dialogue or level of collaboration with, with Russia going. Because it's needed if we want to sort of preserve or save the Arctic Council Russia has to be a part of it. And also, if we want to to preserve uh, understanding of the full Arctic area, we, Russia has to be on board. I think we should also bear in mind that Russia is increasingly militarized. So Russian institutions are not free in the sense that we know that our research institutions are free. Uh, there was a, a, a number of rectors of, of uh, Russian universities express support of the invasion. 
So, so it's not so easy to build up trust in a situation where the institutions are not uh, free willingly or unwillingly. Yeah, uh, one hypothesis, uh, if, if this situation should become a long-term uh, situation, is also that Russia will look more eastward and, and also the Russian part of the Arctic, the eastern part, will become an area where uh, other eastern states like China, India, which is uh, relying more heavily on Arctic uh, resources, will follow this up by collaborating more closely with Russia on Arctic science. And then you would have like an, a Western and an, and an Eastern Arctic being built. Uh, but of course, this is, this is a theory oh, and uh, it's uh, still difficult to predict the future. Yeah, sure, but not unimaginable. I mean, yeah, mm. but also, but, but just one more thing, I, I would like to 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 add uh, the sanction regime sort of forbids institution to institution collaboration, but not person to person collaboration or scientist to scientist. But this is getting almost impossible, and there are no real incentives. So um, also the the personal relationships that so many scientific projects are established upon. They erode, and uh, and friendships uh, erode. So, and 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 this will become harder to reestablish if the situation should normalize or come back to to where it was before the war at some point. So, it it further complicates things. Yeah, I mean that all makes sense, and it's obviously quite a depressing picture. I just want to dive a bit deeper into a couple of the points you made, you both made about what's going on and and the role of science in this broader geopolitical situation. So firstly, you mentioned about this paradox of using science to send a signal. And I see what you're getting at there, but I also wonder if that is really the whole picture. I mean, when you look at economic sanctions, they, of course, are partly about sending a signal, but they're also intended to actually affect Russia, you know, to give them less money to do stuff that we don't want them to do. So if your international trade is reduced, then the idea is you can't get the money you need to make more guns or tanks or pay your soldiers or whatever. Is there not an equivalent element in science? Are we not denying Russia something they need somehow by cutting off scientific collaboration? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Uh, I, th I think Russia will have, um, the, the, within the scientific community, I'm sure there's a great frustration of losing collaborators and data in uh, the West. And then we could also always uh, ask the question whether this is uh, important enough for the Russian uh, government or Russian society as whole, the Russian economy, for this to be a big problem. I fear not that it has the highest priority uh, within the Putin regime. The, the frustration that I mentioned also within the Russian Arctic science community um, or this, uh, the Russian science community of being sort of locked out of the, of the Western collaboration might also bring them closer to the Russian regime or the Russian thinking. So we are, we are, yeah, we are, which, we are, which of course is the argument often made against sanctions in general, right? Yeah, that you end up course. having the opposite effect by changing public opinion in the opposite direction. Of course, and then then we are also moving a bit more into like science diplomacy and as channels to influence um, the thinking in in other uh, countries. Yeah, I think uh, this isolation is probably not good if we want to support changes, regime changes, or changes in the Russian thinking on on the longer term. Well, of course, it has some, some implications to those who have Western contacts. But I, I would also think that if you, if you look at uh, the status of Russian research, it hasn't been grand. In a number of projects, the Russians haven't been leading uh, the scientific development. They've been a partner, uh, an important partner. What this does is that it undermines the quality of, of Russian research. Uh, and uh, in my impression is that the government doesn't really care. And uh, we have, even before the war, lots of experience where the Russian military has stopped scientific expeditions on very vague grounds just because they are suspicious. So the military take precedence in many cases and is more important than the scientific uh, research or scientific breakthroughs. 
Yeah, so you're not convinced that the sanctions, at least on science, are really hitting Putin where it hurts, basically. But then there's a risk, isn't there, that this can sound a bit like special pleading by the scientific community. You know, there are many areas of activity which have been disrupted by the invasion of Ukraine and by the sanctions and restrictions that we've placed on Russia. And those sanctions, broadly speaking, have been put there for a reason, right? Because the international community wants to try to stop Russia from doing what it's doing. And I think there's already some debate about whether we in Europe, in Western Europe, I should say, can really look the Ukrainians in the eye and say that we're on their side and we, we get what's happening to them. Oh, but we're not willing to, for instance, you know, send NATO planes to blow up Russian tanks or enforce a no-fly zone or whatever. I don't want to get into that debate. I know it's a big, complicated one. And frankly, I think it's not one that you or I are very well qualified to, to wade into. But my point is, in that general context, do you ever worry that it seems a bit strange to say, well, we scientists support and understand these sanctions in general, but oh, not as they apply to us and our work because we think science is a special case. It seems like an uncomfortable place to stand against the backdrop of a massive and really brutal military invasion of a peaceful country. And and what's to stop other people saying the same thing? You know, companies who trade in food or medicines or, I don't know, international sport or arts or cultural exchange, which are sectors that you also often hear railing against sanctions because they're supposed to be different and somehow transcend this stuff. I'm asking, like, are we comfortable arguing that science is exceptional and should be off the hook without opening the floodgates to a lot of similar arguments from elsewhere? Well, it's not really, but there is a, there are, there is a case in terms of uh, the global significance of, of active research, uh, which I think from a policy perspective should be, should be uh, a part of, of this. But of course, everybody can plead their own case. But I think uh, losing out uh, key information on what's happening to our climate at least necessitates uh, some thinking. Yeah, I, I agree with, 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 with what I said and saying. That the, 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 I mean, the, the war between the Russia and, and the Ukraine is horrendous. It's a horrible, horrible war. But it's, it's a European uh, conflict, but a larger, a much larger challenge that humanity is facing is the climate crisis. It looks now we will not reach the 1.5 degree target uh, within uh, time. And losing essential data uh, in this effort together, it might you know, give us a, a, a bit more blurry vision of, of where we stand. And that is uh, can take us in the wrong direction or makes the time that we get a, more, a longer time to get there. That's a stronger argument than, you know, just a commerce argument or a collaboration, people to people collaboration or, um, yeah, these kinds. Mm, thank you. And since you mentioned that we might all collectively <laughs> fail to do what we promised and, and limit warming to 1.5 degrees, do you think there's a danger also that Russia, given the current uh, geopolitical situation, might give up, essentially, and perhaps pull out of the Paris Agreement? Yeah, I, I think there's, all, there's always a danger with, with a regime like that. And I'm not sure whether they they follow their, uh, their promises e even now in terms of their economy. And they are doing whatever they can to not be hurt as deeply as they maybe should by sanctions. And that's the, the primary thing now, and I think that will happen for a while. I don't think we can rely on Russia to, to be sort of a, a leading country in terms of uh, following the Paris Agreement. And I don't think anybody really did that before the war also. Yeah, I, I agree. But with, with the, the costs of running an expensive war, I, I don't think this will be a, a high priority for, for the Russians and, 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 and probably don't see the international pressure as uh, as important as as previous but i don't think we will see uh, like the us under trump that they will sort of withdraw from the cop uh, agreement i i don't think maybe just because they don't 
see it as important and it will be more costly to withdraw than to just you know stay within the the the, the regime but uh, but i don't think this is a, this is not a priority for for russia and, and they also want to be friendly with some countries in the world which support the paris agreement uh, so i don't think i think that will only complicate the situation which is bad enough as it is yeah fair enough well well, look, more optimistically, um, you kind of hinted at this earlier, I think. Is there a possibility at all of science having a wider impact on global affairs here? This is like the optimistic view of science diplomacy, right? That science leads the way. I'm not suggesting that, like you say, an Arctic scientist is going to go to Putin and say, hey, you need to make peace because I need to measure the permafrost. And he's going to say, okay, oh, I didn't think of that, my mistake. Okay, fine, we'll pull out of Ukraine. But, you know... Whether keeping some channels of communication open, keeping some degree of trust in at least this small corner of society when it's gone everywhere else, might actually be a big benefit when the war finally ends, touch wood, and there is a need to rebuild bridges and rehabilitate Russia somehow. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think science diplomacy has has something to deliver in this type of conflict, at least post the hot war. Uh, but also in other places, and, and uh, there is uh, lots of emphasis on science as one way of bridging uh, gaps, uh, both in the Middle East and elsewhere. So I think uh, if one are looking for possible ways to open up at least some dialogue uh, with countries that are difficult to, to deal with, I think scientific collaboration is, is an easier way than many other aspects of at least starting a process. Yeah, and, and I think that despite all we have said about, you know, Russia j- just being focused on, on the military as a building themselves up as a military power now, there still are strong institutions and strong uh, scientific uh, milieus who are working on the Arctic. And the Arctic is uh, high on the Russian agenda more for commercial reasons than for scientific reasons, but you need the knowledge, you need the science to operate in this uh, harsh conditions and, and the complicated conditions. And then, of course, uh, knowledge from, from the rest of the Arctic and the rest of the world on Arctic issues uh, would benefit the Russian Arctic development. And and also... Before Norway taking over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council for this two-year period now in May, Russia held the chairmanship of the Arctic Council. And they uh, don't, after their attack on the Ukraine, nobody attending their meetings, but they held their meetings and they sort of uh, committed to do their job as as leading a country as well as they could. Um, so, so I think that's uh, from the Russian point of view, they want to collaborate uh, with other countries, uh, I guess, on any issue, but especially on the Arctic issue, issues. So it might be uh, definitely at some point that uh, they, they will see the need for that and try to open up the channels a bit. But of course, the collaboration has not been put to a halt or, or stopped from the Russian side, it has from the Western side. So it's totally up to the West to say that now we are ready to collaborate. And uh, there has been very, very strong statements that there will be no collaboration until the the war has ended. So, yeah. But, uh, there, there is one exception, at least uh, Norway has is still uh, conducting fisheries negotiations with Russia because uh, we we uh, have a joint fish stock in, in the Barents Sea that needs to be taken care of. So so there are some small cracks in, in this fence. Uh, uh, so there is some pragmatism also on the Western side, but, but clearly uh, it is uh, a wall at the moment. Yeah, I mean, so that's an area which... I'm not surprised by. In a way, it's not surprising that no matter what else is going on globally, there are these local areas of collaboration and cooperation which just have to continue because if you don't do them, you can't function. Like, for instance, 
negotiating fishing rights over areas of shared water. You just can't manage without it. A long time ago, I worked for a member of the European Parliament who was stuck on the fisheries committee, I think against his better judgment. Um, and um, he went once on a trip up to a water, an area of the sea, it might have been the Barents Sea, which was indeed shared between Russia and Norway. And he went on the Norwegian um, patrol boat. They had these military patrol boats that patrol the area of the, of the sea. And, of course, the Norwegians have their patrols and the Russians have their patrols. And the agreement between the two sides is we will both jointly patrol these waters. And that agreement has been standing for uh, decades, right, since before the Cold War, similarly to the stuff we're talking about for the Arctic. No matter what else has been going on in the world, no matter how cold relationships have been between the East and the West in general, these patrol boats have always had to get on and had to interact because that's just the job that has to be done up there. And he said that the, they had an agreement, a mutual agreement, that either side could board and inspect the other side for any reason. It's kind of a way of maintaining trust, right? You know, we, we, we allow you to board our ship whenever you want and we can board yours whenever we want. And he said that the way it worked out up there, because of course there was nothing actually going on, was that they had this unspoken agreement that whenever the uh, Norwegians wanted some really good vodka, they would board the Russian ships and the Russians would say, OK, let's have a break now and we'll sit and drink vodka. And then uh, on the other side, whenever the Russians wanted good Wi-Fi, which they didn't have, they would board the Norwegian ships and they needed to check Facebook, you know, and so on. Um, so it kind of doesn't surprise me that these things have always continued despite the broader geopolitical situation. What does surprise me a bit, I suppose, therefore, is how come it hasn't this time? How come that wall you were just describing is so solid in the case of the Ukraine invasion? What's different now that means these sanctions are so hard-hitting and so far-reaching? Um, you know, one the reason that they might be unprecedented is that the last couple of decades, or from the 70s, we are much more uh, integrated across borders as far as science collaboration goes. Uh, how how enormously tight uh, the internationals uh, or internationalized the science community is today. Right, yeah. So the consequence being that when these sanctions come in, they are much more disruptive than they would previously have been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Are you aware of any pushback against that? whole situation. I mean, maybe it's hard to imagine, but I'm thinking perhaps by analogy with COVID, when when the pandemic hit in 2020, we all shut down our international travel. Um, and at the same time, large parts of China were just completely shut down, you know, and suddenly we all realized in Europe that the stuff we needed to fight the pandemic, like surgical masks and, and equipment, that kind of thing, was all stuck in China where it was made. And we'd become so dependent on Chinese manufacturing that we didn't have enough capacity in Europe or other parts of the world to make our own stuff once China was out of the picture. And so to try and avoid that happening again in future, there's been a lot of talk in Europe, and I imagine elsewhere too, about strategic independence. We need to stop relying on the globalized world for everything. We need to be able to put together a syringe at home, right, if push comes to shove. So there's now this kind of momentum towards changing how we do things longer term. I'm wondering if a similar argument is being made or has been made for science. If it turns out we can't rely on wobbly partners like Russia for our research, can we learn other ways to do it? I I haven't heard that said. This is the first time I hear that argument. <laughs> well, I so, just made it up. So, so I I think the way science operates, it's very difficult to to put it into silos. And, and in terms of the Arctic, you cannot create another Russian Arctic. It, it is what it is, and it, it, it is located where it is. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so it was a silly idea in principle. But, but it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. And when we see, and it, it sort of goes back to, 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 the, to what we talked about, the internationalization of, I mean, the internationalization of science in general, science collaboration, you know, it follows a general trend of globalization and global collaboration, which has been sort of uh, pulled back now, especially since uh, Trump took over. You know, we see the tendency of more like national thinking. So 
it's it's interesting whether it will have this kind of effects also on on science. But we see it, of course, in more practical terms that when we cannot collaborate with Russia, we find partners elsewhere because we want to collaborate uh, on science across borders. And and I see it from my my position in the European Research Council that. Uh, you know, it's of course constructed for European countries, but there's lots of interest from other areas of the world to somehow join or associate with, with the program because it's successful and they want to have that success also influencing their own the scientific community. That is in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, or other countries with with a quite strong uh, science base. Mm. Well, we'll see. You know, as much as I always enjoy and I'm always interested by conversations I have on this podcast, it's, I think it's rare that any of those conversations approach the stakes that we've been discussing today. This tension between broad geopolitics and the ability of policymakers to have access to the science they need to address an existential threat to our existence. <laughs> so I'm really very grateful to you both for guiding me and the listeners through this fascinating, really important area. And for giving some hope for optimism among uh, also a lot of very ominous observations, I have to say. So, Ulla Urutweit and Professor Eistein Janssen, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. SAPEA is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>